Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, concluding section 5. Enjoy! The Laws of Men Quotes Our laws are the output of a system which clothes rascals in robes and honesty in rags. Mary Ellen Lease, U.S. Populist Party Convention, 1890 Law never made men or wit more just, and by means of their respect for it, even the well-disposed are daily made the agents of injustice. Henry David Thoreau, Civil Disobedience Those with power determine what is legal and illegal. They besiege the weak in legal prohibitions to prevent the weak from resisting. For the weak to resist is illegal by definition. Guardian.co.uk, December 29, 2008 Now that our only principle for living is that of love, and now that we are severed from every law except that in our hearts, How do we treat the laws, orders, rulings and decrees of our governing bodies and officials, legislatures, judiciaries and so on? The answer depends on the spirit in which these are conceived, written and applied. Do they accord with the spirit of life? Are they creative or destructive in intent or outcome? Do they respect human dignity and serve mankind? Are they merciful or... Are they instruments of oppression and injustice? In the creative column, for instance, goes the Moviegoers Code of Conduct, compiled by the weekly Kermode and Mayo Film Review broadcast on BBC Radio. This worthy document sets out ten common-sense principles by which cinema audiences can be considerate and respectful to their neighbours during movie screenings. My personal favourite is the first commandment, No eating of anything harder than a soft roll with no filling. No one wants to hear you crunch, chew or masticate in any way. Nachos cause special offence and are of the devil. Closely followed by no rustling of any kind. On a more serious note, the US Constitution, other than its obsolete and now obscene Second Amendment fostering gun ownership, also serves the spirit of life. But in the destructive column, our prisons are a good place to start in assessing the misery and harm perpetrated by man-made laws. In May 1895, in an act of judicial atrocity, Oscar Wilde was sentenced to two years' hard labour for the purported crime of gross indecency, a story powerfully retold in the play of that title by Moshe Kaufman, Stricken by sickness from his treatment in prison, Wilde died shortly after release. Thus was a beautiful and sensitive spirit, a prophet of the ages, cast into a pit of meanness, bigotry and brutality by a society uncomfortable with his sexual orientation. Recalling his experience, Wilde wrote in his masterpiece The Ballad of Reading Jail, The vilest deeds, like poison weeds, Bloom well in prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. 
pale anguish keeps the heavy gate, and the warder is despair. Laws can be cruel, not just in their sentences, but in their protections of the oppressor, especially in an age when governments and legislatures do the bidding of corporations. Martin Luther King Jr. understood this when, in 1963, he wrote his Letter from a Birmingham Jail in response to a statement published by eight Alabama clergymen. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with a moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. Thus it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, for it is morally right, and I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances, for they are morally wrong. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power-majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow, and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that, as a result of being denied the right to vote, had no part in enacting or devising the law. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama, which set up that state's segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are some counties in which, even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Sometimes a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now there is nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. I hope you are able to see the distinction I am trying to point out. 
Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. The theme of civil disobedience in the face of unjust laws is also championed in Harriet Beecher Stowe's immortal novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, especially in Chapter 9, where we are introduced to Senator Byrd. He has just voted for a law that forbids anyone from helping runaway slaves, and he is defending this stance against his wife's charge of cruelty when Eliza appears, a young slave woman who fled her master's house, bearing her son into a cold winter night. She had taken this desperate measure after learning that her son was to be taken from her and sold to a cruel slave trader the following day. Now, when the senator is confronted with... The real presence of distress, the imploring human eye, the frail, trembling human hand, the despairing appeal of helpless agony. His heart melts, and, contrary to his legislative stance, he wastes little time in providing for Eliza and her child and whisking them to safety. Yet Malice continues to find ready accomplices among the lawmakers of Washington, D.C., and the U.S. government, usually abetted by Congress, now routinely violates the U.S. Constitution and international human rights protections. See also Pharisees in Government below. For instance, the Military Commissions and Detainee Treatment Act of 2006 immunized U.S. officials and those who gave them orders from prosecution for torturing prisoners. It also conferred presidential power to detain any person indefinitely anywhere in the world, citizen or non-citizen, without charge, access to a lawyer, trial or any other challenge or recourse, and to use secret or coerced evidence. Further, it stripped prisoners of the right to habeas corpus, the centuries-old legal principle that a government must justify a detention in the public light of a courtroom. Meanwhile, the British government, led by Tony Blair, was locking people up indefinitely and without trial in breach of the European Convention on Human Rights. To paraphrase constitutional law professor Jonathan Turley, instead of unlawful conduct bending to law, law is now serving unlawful conduct. We may also assess the value of laws by their fruit, as with government's misguided efforts to outlaw drugs, which again underscore how law makes sin increase. As Misha Glennie, author of McMafia, A Journey Through the Global Criminal Underworld, points out, What the war on drugs does, in economic terms, is it confers a value on the commodity, 
which, if it was a legal commodity, it simply wouldn't have, because you would have easy access to it. This is the whole system of prohibition, and why people can make so much money out of narcotics. Not of this world, but in it. Quote, To indulge one's instinctive and uncontrolled sense of justice and right was not, he had found out, permitted with impunity in an old civilization like ours. Thomas Hardy, Jude the Obscure How do we then, as new creations in a new world, living by our own code, interact with this world, where power and authority are so often motivated by fear, greed, blindness, ignorance, envy, stupidity, spite and hate? And how can we be employed long enough to be clothed, housed, and fed in such a system? In the flexible way of the spirit, there can be no hard and fast answer to that. Our responses may range from going through the motions in the manner of Naaman, see, Jesus lied, above, to overturning tables as Christ among the money changers. Or we may modulate how we show up in the world in the manner of Moses, who, after his times in the Lord's presence, took to wearing a veil in order to avoid overwhelming other Israelites with the transfigured glory of God reflected in his face. He didn't insist they always encounter the full, in-your-face truth of God's presence. Rather, his prophetic role was to go to the mountaintop to meet with God, then to pass the divine revelation among the people. We too may adopt such an ambassadorial or priestly calling as we become, in the words of Shakespeare, the imagined voice of God himself, the very opener and intelligencer between the grace, the sanctities of heaven, and man's dull workings. Paul also modulated his appearance in the world, here describing himself as a kind of social chameleon. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. It is as if Paul has taken Moses' veil and painted on it a range of theatrical masks to suit the various characters and stages he plays. But however we costume ourselves for this world, and whatever interactions we choose, let us remember throughout that we are free and belong to no man, and he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. At our core, we remain uncorrupted and incorruptible. Law cannot touch that. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of the Gourmet Gospel, and I'll continue releasing the book in installments over the coming months. The ebook is free until the end of April at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P R O P H E T. 
Before I go, here's the latest from my Verses versus Empire series. Get it? It's a homonym. C'est la guerre. On the fire that swept through Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Did Jesus walk amid the flames that night, when Notre Dame ablaze lit up the sky? Some say they saw him, as perhaps he stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when in the fire Nebuchadnezzar's rage had built, he shielded them. No element can touch the word of God, nor life, nor death, for love's stronger than death, nor present, future, nor war's quick fire, nor anything in all creation, depth of crypt or height of spire. Still, it's the terminology of war French President Macron is summoning with words like battle, courage, mobilize, as powerful and wealthy vie to fund the restoration of this monument, this architectural masterpiece. But what about humanity? The rest of us, made in God's image, living temples. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, letters from Christ, yet many lives on fire. And as they reconstruct the roof, the forest, so-called because its vast construction took a forest, what of forests now being ripped from notre mère, our mother earth, such that she is consumed in heat, her martyrdom no accident, no more than Joan of Arc's. Man rallies to rebuild his Babel towers, and talks of righteousness in cloven tongue, plucks relics from the flames, but hears not him who wore the crown of thorns to heal his sin. Until next week, this has been... Abdiel Leroy.